Our Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of worship. We have already given assent to that. And now we thank you for the privilege of worship around your word. And hearing your word and uh, being exposed to your word, being transformed by your word. We gather to worship for the fundamental reason of pointing our hearts to you and ascribing to you your worthiness. We want to sing of it and pray of it and talk of it and preach about it. But Father, along with ascribing worth to you, another goal of our worship is to be transformed by this worship. Might we never come to gather together with your people or to open up this book, either corporately or privately, with an attitude of apathy or resignation, but might we always come to it expectantly. I'm about to hear the word of God. What might he do in me through this word? And might you be pleased to act in a very particular way to build up our body this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. When we train biblical counselors and biblical disciplers, we talk frequently about motives. So helping the counselors and disciplers understand their own motives about why they're doing what they're doing, as well as giving them tools to understand the motives and desires of those whom they are serving and working with. Why do we do what we do? We understand that there is a connection between our activity our actions, our words, the outward expressions of our lives, and what is inside of us, our internal motivations. Our, our inner man overflows into our outer man and compels our outer man to act. So we say something like this. We do what we do because we want what we want, and we want what we want because we believe what we believe. So everything we do has a desire attached to it, and every desire has a belief system attached to it. Uh, we think about the world and about God and our circumstances and our place in the world, and that compels our desires and it compels our activities. But that's not only true of individuals. It is also true of churches. Every church functions out of a set of desires, and those desires are informed by a belief system. And over the next few weeks, we want to think with you about our theme for this year, equipping the saints. And this morning particularly, I want to unpack with you our desires and our beliefs as we think about ministry and service and the church. Specifically, we want to answer the question, what does Grace Bible Church believe about God and ministry, and what does Grace Bible Church want in ministry? This, is, this goes to our motives, this goes to our hearts. What is it that we as a church entity want? Hold on. We have 13 answers to that question, which means, yes, a 13-point sermon. Pray for me, pray for yourselves. We didn't pack lunch today, so here we go. What does Grace Bible Church believe about God, and how does that inform what we do in ministry? Number one, we believe in the supremacy of God above all things. 
And what I'm going to try and do as we make our way through this is just give you one key verse or one or two key passages to kind of hang your thoughts around each of these ideas. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is one of many that informs this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 says, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And that verse very pointedly draws our attention to the reality that the ultimate purpose of every person and thus the ultimate uh, purpose of every church is to give glory to God. It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about a church. It is about him. Now, when we say our goal is to give glory to God, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to glorify God? And to glorify God essentially means two things. It means, first of all, revelation. To glorify God means that we accurately reveal the nature and the character of God. So we're exposing Him in what we do in the fullness of who He is. And secondly, it doesn't just mean revelation. It doesn't doesn't mean just, well, we do this because that's the way God is. It also means delight, to find satisfaction and worship in the true and all-encompassing nature of God. Being satisfied with the fact that God is above all and for all and in all. So we say it this way, that to live for God's glory is to reveal the character of God And to uphold the majesty of God. That's in our purpose statement. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Vincent, and this I think is in your outline, is very helpful with a definition about glorifying God. He says this, to glorify God is to manifest, to reveal God's glory, not only passively as all creatures do. In other words, you look at any, any creature, you look at creation, you, you, you look at a tree, you look at a flower, you look at an individual, you even look at my dog and cat. And you see something of God's creative genius, His power, His glory. Now that's passive. So we manifest God's glory that way. But then he continues and says, but also actively. Men glorify God when the design of their life and their actions is the glory and honor of God. When inwardly... They have the highest estimation of Him, the greatest confidence in Him, the strongest affections to Him. This is glorifying God in spirit. He's everything to us. And because God's glory and God Himself is preeminent, that also means that God's great goal is to bring glory to Himself. He is ultimate And so he desires that people find their satisfaction in the one thing that is ultimate in this world, and that is himself. So it has been said that God is the most God-exalting person in the universe. There is no one that God takes greater delight in than himself, and that is appropriate because he is ultimate. He is above all things. If he would do anything else, if he would prioritize anyone else or anything else, then he would be an idolater. God is not an idolater and he doesn't want us to be idolaters. So he wants us 
to find the same satisfaction he has to find satisfaction in him. One reason that God wants people to glorify him is not only that we would find satisfaction in him, but also so that his name and his fame would, as it were, go public so that others also will come to have delight in him. Again, that's not egotistical. That's that's gracious. That's God's kindness, his benevolence in seeing people respond to the evangelistic proclamation of his name and character. So God chose Israel and then he chose the church and individuals as a means of spreading a delight in his name. He chose Israel to be an evangelistic light to the world. Jeremiah 13 says, For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. So God creates Israel to make them to be proclaimers of his glory to the nations. And unfortunately, they failed. We'll come back to this verse later as well. But First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, so that you, believers, the church, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God exalts himself, God desires us to exalt in him, and God desires the world to exalt in him, and we are his mouthpiece to make people to come to know him as the most exalted one in the universe. So the most fundamental question that we can ever ask in ministry is simply this, will this glorify God? Does this bring glory to him or to me? Does this bring glory to him or a church? It's always him. He's always preeminent. We're always pointing to him. That's first. That's foremost. Because of the supremacy of God's glory, we are also, we also believe in and are driven by the second principle, which is, well, we're going backwards, that we believe in the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, Colossians chapter 1. So we've already talked about that, about the reality that God's supremacy is the one transcendent truth above all things. And because God is a triune being, the fullness of God and his glory extends to every member of the Trinity, including the second person, Jesus Christ. So We believe in God's supremacy above all things, and that also means that we believe in the preeminence of Christ. He is above all things. He is He is the head of the church. He is the head of all men. He alone is to be followed, imitated, obeyed, and exalted in ministry. Just just listen to all the characteristics of God and Christ that denote his supremacy as Paul reveals it in Colossians chapter 1, verse starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Does that make him preeminent? Yes, supremely. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Both those prepositional phrases, through Him and for Him, denote His glory and His preeminence. Further, He is before all things. He's on top of it, above it, beyond it, greater than it. And in Him... All things hold together. Not everything's held together by super glue and duct, duct tape. What holds it together is the character of God in Christ. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Again, that's another supremacy word. He is the firstborn from the dead so that he will come to have first place in everything. I didn't count it up, but there's six or eight different phrases in those verses that denote the preeminence of Christ. And just like the character of God drives us, Christ drives us. It's about pointing people to him. And it is because of his preeminence that just a couple chapters later, Paul will say in chapter three, if you have been raised up with Christ, that if you've been identified with Christ, if you have new life in Christ, if you believed in him and and trusted in Him, and He's given you His life, if you've been raised up with Him, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Pursue the things that are of Him, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above. What's above? Christ. Not on things that are on the earth. So because Christ is preeminent, because there's no one and nothing that is beyond Christ, We want what we do in ministry to help point people to Christ. We keep looking at Him. Honestly, where else are we going to look for wisdom and contentment and hope and satisfaction? You're going to look at the stock market? Or Fox News? Or the Dallas Cowboys? Not even the Texas Rangers this week. Or Taylor Swift? No, no, no. There's only one that's preeminent. And that's Christ. Remember what Paul says at the end of verse 18. He will come to have first place in everything. We want to live as if nothing and no one is more important than Christ. That's our goal. The benefit of loving Jesus in this way is that we're obedient. That's what God's called us to. But there's another benefit as well, as one theologian has noted. Loving Jesus is the supernatural passion that delivers us from the lure and love of this world. You're attracted to the world? You're attracted to things in the world? I'm not saying that you can't enjoy things in the world, right? It we're, we're going to eat something today and we're going to enjoy that. That's God's common grace to us. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to see a lawn that's not brown, but it's green. That's God's common grace and we're going to enjoy that. He's not saying you can't enjoy those things. But you never enjoy them to the point that they supplant Christ in your life. And you always enjoy them even as pointers Christ. So you can watch a baseball game and say, wow, this is really amazing. That ball player making that catch or making that run or that hit. 
is an expression of God's supreme authority in creating us to do that. I see God's glory in a ball well struck. And Christ then is preeminent. So everything we do is examined by the question, is this going to help the church body to make Christ preeminent and to enjoy Him? Thirdly, we believe in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. You might notice that the first three items on this list are God-oriented. Trinitarian, if you will. And that is not accidental because God is above all things. Everything is for his glory. So preeminently, the first thing we want to do is point our attention to God's nature and the three persons within the Godhead. So we believe in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Transformation is necessary because all men are sinners. We are Sinful to the extent that we are entirely depraved. And by that I don't mean that there aren't more sinful things that we could do, that we've done every sinful thing that we could do to its nth degree. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that in every individual that has ever been created, there is nothing in him that isn't touched and stained by sin. The entirety of our beings are stained by sin. I am not, and I use the personal pronoun intentionally, I am not good people. And there is nothing I can do to make myself better or make myself good. And friends, there's, this cannot be overemphasized. Without the Spirit's regenerating work, we are entirely hopeless And yet he does regenerate us. So Titus chapter 3 says, We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You just thought I was being extreme in what I said. You didn't even think about what Paul said, right? He's describing depravity. And that that is every individual and every person. And brothers and sisters, even... As believers, while our nature has changed, we still battle the flesh. So here's your verse, Galatians chapter 5. Well, Galatians 5 isn't a verse, but there are multiple verses in Galatians 5. Let me point you first to verse 13 so that we can see what Paul says about the flesh and even how we struggle with it as believers. So he says in verse 13, You were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity from the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So we lament over our struggle with the flesh and our frustration over our ongoing battle with sin, but we rejoice in what God has provided for us in the Spirit to recognize that we're not stuck in the struggle. We can change. We can live under the Spirit's control and authority and not carry out the desires of the flesh. You don't have to do that stuff. 
So he says in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We can, we can live in such a way that the Spirit produces all of His work and fruit in us. Which is a reminder, the transformation is possible through the power of the Spirit. So transformation is necessary because we're sinners Even as believers, we still persist in this battle with the flesh. But transformation, brothers and sisters, is possible. You can change. You can be liberated. God is going to change all of us in eternity. And every vestige of sin is going to be removed. But brothers and sisters, even now, He's doing it today. And this change is always a result of God's grace administered through the word of God. We're dependent on him and he is adequate to change us. Can I just ask a question? It's worth taking some time periodically to just do some spiritual inventory and say, where has God changed me? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have the spirit of God living within you, that spirit will produce his fruit. So what's the evidence of that? What, what's God changing in you? Is he changing your marriage? And how you're serving and loving your wife, submitting to your husband's leadership? What's he doing with your children? What's he doing in making you contented or making better financial decisions or battling against anger and lusts? Brothers and sisters, none of us is perfect, but all of us are being transformed day by day. By the power of the Spirit who is within us. We are changing. That's hopeful. We are not stuck because of the transforming work of the Spirit. Fourthly, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to produce transformation. And lots of verses we could go to here that would affirm the transforming work of the Spirit, of, of, the, of the Word, and the power of the Word, and the sufficiency of the Word. But let me just give you one from Jesus' high priestly prayer. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus prays to His Father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. I want those who follow me, Jesus prays, to be sanctified, to be transformed, to be changed. And Jesus could have pointed to all kinds of things to produce that transformation. And what's the one thing he identified that would bring about that transformation? Your word. The word of God is the, is the fundamental means of transformation in us. Now, sometimes that almost comes across as take two Psalm 37s and call me in the morning. Brothers and sisters, our dependence on the scriptures is paramount. There is no transformation without the Bible. There is no hope for the unbeliever without the Bible. It starts there. To say that the scripture is sufficient is not to say the Bible is enough, like barely, like I think I have enough money to get to the end of the month. No, no, no. It means that Scripture's power and authority to change is limitless. To say that Scripture is sufficient is to say that there is nothing in us that is beyond the scope of the Word of God to change us and transform us. Nothing. 
Mom taught me always to say, never say never. Always, it's always bad to say always. Except when you're talking about things as they relate to the nature and character of God. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that God can't change. I don't know how many conversations I've had over the last six months where either I or the other person I'm talking to has said something like, the world is really broken. There is so much hurt. And there is so much suffering. And there are so many trials. And I have wept and you have wept. And we need to hear and we need to know and we need to act on this reality that there is nothing that is beyond the power of the Word of God to see us through. It's enough. And so here we say in Grace Bible Church that the Scripture is sufficient for all things related to life and ministry. Everything. And the Bible alone is our sole authority and it dictates everything that we will do. So around here, if you're new, just understand you're never going to get a skyscraper sermon. You know what that is, don't you? Skyscraper sermon, that's one story on top of another. That's not the way we function. We're going to immerse you in the Word of God because stories may be inspiring, they may be helpful, they may be illuminating, they may be invigorating, but Monday morning happens and they fall flat. And the only thing that's going to help you is the Word of God. And so we're, we are intentional in everything we do. It starts in the pulpit and goes all the way down to the nursery. That we're going to immerse our people in the Word of God so that they know this book and they can experience its adequacy. So whether you're in a home group or being discipled or being counseled or in Awana or in Faith Fit or in Entrusted, whether you're training counselors, being trained as a counselor, whether you're coming for worship, all of that is being driven by this book because this book is enough. Well, if I'm not careful, I'm going to go to preaching and run out of time. So, number five, we believe in grace. We believe in grace. You know, the name of our church is Grace Bible Church. It's not an accident. We believe in grace because no amount of man's effort can achieve salvation or sanctification. We are saved by grace, kept by grace, sanctified by grace, and glorified by grace. See if you've heard this verse, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. That's another way of saying Grace. It is the gift of God. That's grace. It's not as a result of works. That's grace. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's grace. Everything we have is grace. In grace, God doesn't say to us, Ah, I like you. You're okay. No, God doesn't overlook our sin. We are anything but okay. But in grace, God does say, I love you. And because I love you, I will give to you the greatest gift that, you, that I could possibly give you and send my son to redeem you for your, for your sin and draw you into fellowship with me, with me. That's grace. 
It's undeserved and it's unmerited. And because we are saved by grace and because everything we have is by grace, the one thing we want to do is give grace to others. We not only want to be saved by grace, there are a lot of churches that can point to the the, the tenets of the faith and say, it's all by grace, yes, but do you do you work out that grace with others? Are you gracious towards the body? And because we have been saved by grace, we not only revel in that grace, but we also reveal that grace and share that grace by loving others. By forgiving others. We don't have time to look at it, but just jot down Matthew 18, 32 and 33, the parable of the, the unforgiving steward. And so we want to be those who have been forgiven, who have been graced and, and, and share that grace with others through forgiveness. Matthew 18, 32 and 33. And then we also are gracious just by blessing others for their God-given, God-exalting liberties. Listen, while we love each other and we have commonality in Christ, we all have different perspectives. We all, we all have different backgrounds and we all have different preferences. And the preferences do not divide us. But because we are united to Christ, we give grace on the differences over preferences and we embrace in love. And I have heard multiple times over the years, we don't do it perfectly, but I've heard multiple times over the years, I walked in the church building and I recognized something different is going on here. And it is because of the love we have for one another that comes by grace and through grace. And we... That must continue to saturate us. That we live by God's grace and we share that grace with others. Six, we believe in the church. God has ordained the church to be his primary vehicle to accomplish his work and to bring him glory. Uh, Matthew 16, Jesus says to to, uh, uh, Peter in verse 18, after Peter had declared... um, the testimony of who he believed Christ was. Jesus says to him, you are Peter. And on this rock, that statement, I will build my church. In other words, um, Christ's church is the vehicle by which Christ will disseminate his ministry abroad. First Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes in verse 15, In case I am delayed, I write to you so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So God's vehicle, God's means of disseminating the gospel and building up people is the church. When we talk about church, We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about property. We're talking about people. We're not talking about an organization. We're talking about an organism whose purpose is the care of souls, about equipping members and caring for the hurting. The church is, to change the analogy slightly, like a hospital that trains medical caregivers and cares and heals the hurting and the broken. What does a church do? It's really quite simple. Again, we don't have time to unpack it. You heard it read for you this morning. Acts chapter 2, 
verses 42 to 47. We do four fundamental things. We worship, we instruct, we engage in fellowship, and we edify and evangelize. If you want to think about it simply, we worship, instruct, fellowship, evangelize, W-I-F-E, wife. That's a good way to remember it. It's a simple way to remember it. So that's what a church does. And all of that is designed to build up, to train, equip, and to care for those who are broken and hurting. And every believer should be identified with, trained in, and serve in a local church. Listen. The New Testament knows nothing of genuine believers functioning alone apart from the authority of the church. Christ is building His church. It really is that simple. All right, so we're halfway through. And everything we've talked about so far is fundamentally about the nature and character of God. But there are implications that flow from all of these things about his nature and character. And that's what the rest of our core values affirm. The following seven core values are about church life. These are the truths that we believe about spiritual life that drive and sustain us in ministry. They compel us. What do you believe about God and Scripture? And how does that inform what you will do in these areas? So let's think about seven more principles. Number seven, we believe in the priority of a personal walk in life with God. 1 John chapter 1 tells us, verses 3 and 4, that God has created us for fellowship with Him. We have seen and we heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy, what joy? The joy of fellowship might be made complete. We're, we are created and we are created, recreated in Christ Jesus so that we can have fellowship with God. And that's what we want to do. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, watch this, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In everything they do, they're adorning, magnifying, revealing the character and the nature of God. That's the nature of bond slaves. That's, That's the nature of all people. And to have fellowship with Christ, to have fellowship with the Godhead, means that we are happy with God. God is not honored by dutiful, unhappy obedience. There's a lot of obedience to God that's dutiful, that's done rightly. The right thing has been done. The right thing has been accomplished. The right doctrine has been upheld. But it's been done out of obligation and not joy, and Christ has not been honored. Remember what John Owen said. Christ is our best friend, and before long He will be our only friend. And I pray God with all my heart, that I may be weary of everything else but communion with Him. Listen, when you get to heaven, 
Christ will be your primary focus. And if you aren't satisfied with him now, then then heaven won't be a joy to you. So cultivate that joy now. So when you get there, you can revel in that delight then. Our priority is to live with God, to have fellowship with him, to feed ourselves in him as God intended us to do. And as we think about ministry, it's rooted in a desire to help people cultivate that joy, a fervency, a delight in Christ. To that end, we also believe in discipleship. We believe in discipleship. Simply said, to be a disciple is to be a learner and a follower of Christ. To be a learner of Christ. And to be a discipler is to be a model of a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to have been with Christ. One of the very first books that I preached when I came here was the Gospel of Mark. And I saw something in Mark that I'd never seen before. And it has just stuck with me all these years. Jesus calls the twelve to be his disciples. He went up under the mountain, Mark 3.13, and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. He wanted them with him. Fellowship, teaching, discipling, training, equipping so that they learn. That's the goal of discipleship. Simply said, discipleship is one believer helping another believer be and live more like Jesus Christ. If you want another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to be, be able to teach others also. Four generations. Paul, those he taught, those who they taught, and those who they taught. And that's the goal. I just want to keep building into the next generation. And sometimes we get to see the fruit of that, right? So Paul looked at those he taught in Ephesus where he's sending this letter and he, he sees how they're being trained and equipped. And he sees something of the next generation. But notice how he says at the end, so that they will be able to teach others also. That's a generation he'll never see. But his legacy is continuing forward. So keep looking forward and building into others so that so that they will train others, so that they will train others, so that the Word of God will grow. That's why we spend time with the little guys, right? There's some of you who are training those children who not only won't see them into their 40s, you may not see them to 20. And you're investing in yourself in them and you're pouring yourself into them at the end of your life because you believe that this is valuable. And that's what we're about. Everyone, everyone that is in Christ is either discipling or being discipled. That's, that's the only two categories. You're either a disciplee or a discipler. 
There are no other options. So everything we do in ministry here is with that in mind. How can we take people, train them, equip them so that they're like Christ, so that God is honored and exalted? Nine, we believe in evangelism. Four reasons why we believe in evangelism. Because if we want to do number eight, disciple, we have to do number nine, evangelize. Because you don't have anybody to disciple if you don't have anyone who has believed in Christ. So we love the gospel and we love evangelism because we love discipleship. And we also believe in evangelism because God is an evangelist. He seeks glory so that others will come to know him. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. Lots of places we could go. Uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God is an evangelist who loves proclaiming the gospel of salvation, and it's because God loves that, we love it. Thirdly, we, we love and believe in evangelism because it's the only means to growth in the church. The only way either the local church or the universal church grows is through conversion. And fourthly, we believe in evangelism because it's commanded. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Because I'm authoritative, then you go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I am commanded you. Is there going to be trouble along the way? Yes. And that's why he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This has just been the heartbeat of the church right from its inception. So Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the pastor of the Ephesian church, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Evangelism is at the heart of what a pastor does, what, what leadership does. Ephesians chapter 6, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel, says the apostle Paul. I, I need help in revealing the gospel. And that also means if we believe in the gospel and we believe in evangelism, that means we need to know the gospel, right? So I've done a whole message on this. I can't remember. It's on our website. I can't remember when it was, two, three, four years ago. The message of the gospel in six words, okay? Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. That's the gospel. Grace, salvation is by grace alone, nothing earned or merited by us. Man, man is a sinner who cannot save himself. God, God is loving and merciful. And in his love and his mercy, he doesn't want to punish sin, but he's also wrathful and he can't go against his wrath. So he will punish sin and he will pour out his wrath against all sinners. Christ, Christ is the infinite God man who took on flesh, became a man entirely like us, yet without sin died in the cross in our place, not because he had to die, but because he wanted to die, so that he could absorb the wrath of God against sin, so that, fifth, we have faith and believe in him alone as the only object of our salvation and the only object of anyone worth living for. 
So we turn away from our sin and repentance and we turn to Christ in faith and say, would you save me and can I live for you? And the last word, hope, that God did all this to give us confidence and hope that we can go to him. He is the end of the gospel. Our hope is in him and our desire is to get to him. That's the gospel. That's evangelism. And my friend, if you aren't here, if you are here today and you do not believe in Jesus Christ, I've gone through it very rapidly. But if you don't yet believe in Jesus Christ, I urge you and compel you, would you yet today begin believing in Jesus Christ? And just a word, Jesus Christ is not something you do like one time. Oh, I prayed that prayer. I walked the aisle. I got baptized. That's not what believing in Christ means. Believing in Christ means I repent, I turn away from my sin, and I turn to Christ. And I say, you're my all. I have nothing else. I want to live for you. And I appeal to you, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, would you turn away from false idols and false gods that will not satisfy and turn to the only one who will satisfy, and that is Jesus Christ, our God and Savior in heaven. There's a tenth priority in ministry core value in ministry it is this we believe in the power and priority of forgiveness and reconciliation we've already alluded to this briefly but we forgive because we've been forgiven we cannot not forgive others we must forgive forgiveness is never an option And the ability to forgive is rooted in the work of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put those things off. What do you put on instead? Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Because God in Christ has also forgiven you. We are kind, we are tenderhearted, we are forgiving because we have been forgiven so very much. And brothers and sisters, all relational offenses can be resolved by forgiveness. Now, I know some of you are in broken relationships right now. Some of you are in relationships where you may not have spoken to someone Not just in months, but in years. Not just years, but decades. And I'm telling you that forgiveness can resolve it. One biblical example. Paul and Barnabas went on first missionary journey. They came back to the Jerusalem church and they were thrilled with what had happened. And they gave this full report. And they're all fired up and excited. And the church said, go again. And they said, okay, let's go again. Let's go visit where we've been and let's keep on expanding where the gospel has been. Verse 37, Acts 15. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. Now the text doesn't say it, but it's it's inferring that we've read the rest of the story. John Mark bailed halfway through the first trip. And Barnabas is saying, let's take my nephew Mark And let's see if he can do better this time. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
Barnabas says, hey, Paul, how about a little bit of grace? Paul says, too much at stake. No, he needs to prove his worth before we entrust more ministry to him. And the text says, there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and left both being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. We don't know everything in the New Testament, but there is no record anywhere in the New Testament that Paul and Barnabas ever did ministry together again. It was a permanent division. And so when Luke says there arose no small disagreement, you know what that means, don't you? It means it was huge. Can God fix that? Paul is getting ready for his departure from this life into the next by beheading. And he writes this to Timothy in his last letter. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved at this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. And bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. I don't think I've ever read that without weeping. And brothers and sisters, that points to what God can do to reconcile people who have been separated. Forgiveness is powerful. And we are committed to seeing that worked out through our body. Every relational breakage can be resolved by forgiveness in Christ. 11, we believe in marriage and family. Marriage is a place of the most satisfying relationship that we can have on earth. The first relationship that God created, apart from the one between him and Adam, is the relationship between husband and wife. That's not accidental. What are the benefits of marriage? Well, marriage is one of the greatest places to model the ministry of reconciliation. It's not accidental that I put we believe in marriage and family after we believe in marriage and forgiveness and reconciliation. The two go together, don't they? Sure they do. You can say amen to that. That's okay. There's no greater... There's been no greater influence in my marriage than having to learn, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Powerful words. And that's, that's manifested supremely in the marriage relationship. Marriage teaches us how to work that stuff out. Marriage also teaches us how to live in the church family. Being committed to your spouse and having to work through forgiveness will teach you the meaning of commitment to a church body and work out forgiveness in the context of the church. And relationships there as well. Marriage teaches us submission to our head, God and Christ. In all kinds of forms, but also it teaches us submission to him who defines what gender is, male and female. And defines what marriage is, one man with one woman for life. And submitting to that is of immense benefit. 
Marriage anticipates and works towards the future of, a joy, of the joy of Christ. One of the pictures of what we have in heaven is the marriage feast. And celebrating in this joyful union between Christ and his church. And even the lack of marriage or the lack of children teaches us about the sufficiency of Christ and the joyful freedom to serve him wholeheartedly. So we believe in marriage and family. And just a note, I'm I'm skipping over lots of stuff. You know that, don't you? Like all of these could not just be one sermon, but multiple sermons. So I'm just trying to give you the essence of them. And I know that I'm leaving things unsaid uh, and I'm sweeping with a broad brush. So just be aware of that. Twelve, we believe in the value of problems, both our own problems and the problems of others. James chapter 1, problems provide opportunities for change and transformation and joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, Jesus' half-brother wrote, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials will feed your endurance, and endurance will feed your maturity, and that will produce joy. And brothers and sisters, your problems are not just designed by God for your good. They are designed by God for the good of the body of Christ. Your problems are an encouragement and an exhortation to everyone around you as we see how you are progressing and clinging to Christ in the midst of hard things. And I know it's hard. But your faithfulness stimulates others to be faithful as well. In fact, that's why we have the whole Old Testament. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says in his first letter, chapter 10, reminding them about many of the things that happened in the Old Testament. He says in verse 6, These things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. So they're examples. Don't do that. Do this. And our lives serve as the same thing. And when we struggle and when we suffer and when we are hurt, we will never experience the grace of God as much as when we, as we will when we are hurt. And we will be the greatest encouragement and the greatest help when we are faithful in that hurt to others around us. Lastly, we believe in every member ministry 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you hear what Peter said? You are a priest. That probably doesn't weigh very heavily on you. But in the Old Testament, just the very fewest men were set aside for priesthood. And far fewer still could go into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. One man, once a year, could do that. And now, Peter says, a veritable army of priests has been unleashed on the church and on the world. 
And God has positioned you to do that, to serve in that way. So you've been gifted with a spiritual gift to accomplish that. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Every member of the body, every believer in Christ gets a gift not to be used self-servingly, but to be used in serving others. To build up, to equip other people. So ministry is not about programs. It's not about buildings. It's not about jobs. It's not about vocations. It's about being with people. So that as we are with people, those people are built up, equipped, encouraged, helped to progress in their faith and to mature in their faith so that they can in turn serve others. Listen, relationships in the church are no small thing. They are eternal and they have eternal value. And ministry is designed so that we can be with one another and build up one another. And that is why we do what we do. Everything what I've unfolded this morning flows out of our doctrinal statement. And all of these core values inform our ministries and direct us as to what we will do. And what we want to do is to equip people to be built up, transformed, look like Jesus Christ so that they can in turn minister to others so that God is exalted and Christ is enjoyed. Would you bow with me? Thank you, Father, for the goodness of your word. We've gone through it in a very different way than normally this morning. But we've seen in broad pictures the sweetness of what you have provided for us in the church. And as we come to these passages, we thank you for what you have produced in Grace Bible Church. You've been so faithful to use broken people to minister to other broken people so that Christ is exalted. And we thank you for that. Might you keep us ever faithful to continue on in the same trajectory of being faithful to the Word of God faithful to the glory of God so that your church is built and Christ is enjoyed. We pray in Christ's name for God's glory. Amen.